Hi, everybody. My name is Larsine. I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I want to thank you all very much for having me, Peggy and the committee, for the invitation, and Chloe for uh, picking me up at the airport, taking me to dinner last night, and for Southern Hospitality, which I just absolutely love. Um, it's beautiful flying into this area. Um, I don't know if you guys know what a pretty place you live in, but you can definitely see it from up in the sky. And I'm sure that's how God looks down on uh, this place right here. So, um, again, it's a real honor and a privilege to get to be here. I'm just kind of buying time right now because right now I do got nothing. So I'm just waiting, like uh, everybody said, for God to kick in. And uh, um, I want to, uh, you know, the other speakers, you know, Kate and, uh, and Lori, absolutely fabulous. Um, you know, they say a good convention is like a good orgy when it's all over. You can't remember who it was that made you feel good. And, uh, <laughs> So uh, hopefully that'll be the way, you know, you guys feel at the end of this one as well. Um, you know, it's always a little bit intimidating sometimes, you know, to come and, and, and do this deal. But, uh, you know, the, the whole, you know, you know what, what I've really come to learn is, you know, um, you know, it's not the speakers or anything, it's the message, you know, and that's all, I just get to be a messenger today, I get to share my experience, strength, and hope with you guys, and, uh, and I'm going to do that to the very best of my ability. Um, I've been to Kentucky before, and, uh, and I have really good friends here, Bob and Juanita, who are, if they're not, the, if there's any nicer people on the face of the planet, I don't know where they live, and, uh, and it's just always so great to be able to get to and, um, you know, and I'm always amazed no matter where I go in the country, you know, Al-Anon is Al-Anon. I mean, and, you know, people are always freaked out about if they have to move somewhere and, you know, and, and they're not going to do it like your group does it or whatever. And especially, I'm from California. We have a definite way of doing things there. And, uh, but, you know, what I've really come to find, you know, when I go to places, I'm always amazed how quickly, you know, I'm embraced by, you know, the, the group that's there is that, you know, it, is it, you do have to move anywhere. You'll find that, you know, as long as if you're sincere about what you want to do and you want to be a member of this fellowship, no matter where you go, you will be embraced because it truly is a, a worldwide fellowship. And I am so, so grateful to be a part of it. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like for me uh, today. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad's a master sergeant in the Army. That means I have automatic rank. I was just born that way. Um, my husband jokes that I came out of the womb carrying a clipboard and wearing an armband, and uh, he's not too far off the mark. Uh, that's just who I am. Uh, when I was in school, I was always playground monitor, cafeteria monitor, room monitor. And uh, <laughs> even at work today, I am the fire warden and the earthquake drill uh, master and all this stuff. And I know my husband questions uh, you know, a company that would give me a bullhorn, but, uh, <laughs> but the, you know, that's just, you know, that's just who I am, you know, I kind of, you know, and, and I know, you know, like the teacher, you know, they always made me that because it's just, you know, if you're misbehaving, I got no problem writing your name down and reporting you to the proper authorities. I got no trouble doing that whatsoever. You know, it's just a gift that I have. And, uh, <laughs> And that's just how I look at it, you know. This is my DNA, this is the way, you know, God made me the way I am, and that's just that. You know, when I came to Al-Anon, I thought Al-Anon was all about, you know, you have to change everything about you because you're so messed up, you know. And what I've really come to learn is that uh, you are who you are, and that's what Al-Anon wants you to embrace, to find out who you are, you know. And, and that's who you're supposed to be, not somebody else or, you know, how somebody else is acting. You're supposed to be who you are supposed to be. But then the kicker here is, you know, and even though, you know, these are the things that work for me, I'm supposed to be who I'm supposed to be, and that means I have to let you be who you're supposed to be. 
you know, when I can do that, then I can have love and serenity and peace in life. And, uh, and it's not always an easy lesson for me, but it's one that I, I, I strive to work on all the time. But anyway, I'm born in this, uh, this house, and my dad's an, a master sergeant in the Army. I have no idea that I'm, uh, my dad's alcoholic. How are you supposed to know that kind of a thing when you're a little kid? Um, my dad drank every day. I don't own a photo of my dad without him having a can of beer in his hand. I don't have a memory of my dad without him not being drinking or whatever. It's just, you know, and, and like I say, how are you supposed to know that as a little kid? Now, see, right away, someone has forgotten the cell phone rule. I'm sorry, we're going to put that out there. So unless you just had a grandbaby be born, you know, because that's about the only exception, or you're a brain surgeon, or you're waiting a liver transplant, well, those are all, all exceptions, but, uh, but anyway, I grew up in this house, and, and like I say, my dad's alcoholic, I have no ideas, you know, I just grew up with this thing because my dad drinks every day, so my thing is, well, dads just drink every day, that's just what, you know, that just must be the way it is, because that's how I'm growing up, so that's how I figure it is for everybody else. We live in other, we always live in military housing, we always live with other military families, and there's a lot of dads that drink, there's a lot of moms and walking around with black eyes and broken arms, that's just the deal that goes on. So I, again, don't think that there's anything extraordinary about it. It was just normal for me. And, uh, um, you know, growing up in this house, when I was um, uh, really new in Al-Anon, and even still today, I mean, that hasn't changed for me. I go to lots of open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says in our Al-Anon literature that we should learn all we can about the disease of alcoholism. And I know no better place to learn that than in open meetings Anonymous. And if I have to describe the house that I grew up in, um, I went to this, my, one of my very first AA meetings I went to, the speaker that night, he talked exclusively about alcoholism, the family sees. And he talked about alcoholism as having a rhinoceros in your living room, but everybody pretends. And if I have to describe the house that I grew up in, that's exactly the house that I grew up in. You know, because like, um, you know, my mom would get to where she could read where my dad was ready to have one of his alcoholic lotions, but she could never say to us kids, okay, nobody talk, nobody do anything because your dad's ready to blow, because if she said that, then of course my dad would blow. So, um, you know, and if you grow up in an alcoholic home, then one of the first things that goes out of the window is any form of verbal communication whatsoever. So, my, you know, so if you grow up in an alcoholic home, you know, my mom would speak to us facially, you know, so if you're sitting at the dinner table and your mom's like, you know, I mean, you know what that means, you know, I mean, nobody has to say a word, it's just, you know, you get the eyeball, or you get the, the little shaky head, or, you know, I mean, you barely have to move, and everybody knows, red alert, look down at your plate, nobody talk, nobody move, you know, but if you have an alcoholic that's going to explode, that's going to happen, and nothing is going to make that not happen, and, you know, there'd be some minor violation or rule infraction, you know, someone would scrape a knife on a plate or your pee would roll off your plate or something and my dad would go ballistic and then dinner would go flying, everybody would get a whooping, everybody would have to go to bed, it could be 5 o'clock in the afternoon, my mom's got to go to bed, the kids, the dog, it's just the way it goes down in our house. You know, and then the next morning you get up and you have the courage to walk into the kitchen because you have to go to school that morning and you know, there's my dad drinking his breakfast beer and you walk in there and it's good morning, what do you want? And no one said, gee whiz, Dad, what was that about last night, Dad? Gee whiz, how come you have, you know, it's, it's a different day, and you just think, you know, you know, and the rhinoceros just goes back to being a coffee table again. And that's just the perfect description. I, I can't describe it any better than that. Um, you know, my dad was one of these people that he was, he was just a, a crazy, lunatical alcoholic. I mean, just the more he drank, and he was a mean drunk. I mean, I didn't get the funny guy, you know, we, we got the really mean guy, and... Uh, 
and he was very, and, and I'd much rather take a physical beating from him than a verbal from him, you know, but again, this is the disease of alcoholism, but when you're a little kid, you got no clue that that stuff is going on, absolutely no clue that's going on, and, and my escape from all of that was going to school, you know, I learned early on, boy, just keep your nose clean, do exactly what the Sarge tells you, and my dad treated us like the Army, oh my gosh, you know, I remember being, you know, three and four years old, we had little Army bunk beds that we had, and my dad had Army blankets on them, and we had little foot lockers where our gear got stored, you know, and, my, and we would do room inspection once a week, you know, and stuff, and I remember being a little kid, my dad patting me on the when I passed inspection, you know, and getting chewed out when I didn't pass inspection. And, uh, and, you know, and, and what I've really come to find out is it worked for me, you know. I'm kind of a disciplined kind of person. I like it. You know, I like knowing what you want me to do. I love rules and regulations. I love information that's written down. You know, and I don't, and again, I don't know if this is my way to be able to try and control a situation, you know, but it, it works for me. It just absolutely works for me. So, you know, when I started going to school, I'm a straight-A student, keep my nose clean, do what the Sarge tells me to do, stay out of trouble as much as humanly possible. And, um, uh, you know, and it just gets progressively worse as it does in an alcoholic home. Uh, I really did excel in school. You know, I, I got a lot of awards, a lot of certificates, a lot of things going on, but I could never really go home until my parents, those things were going on. Because if you've ever had a drunk dad show up at a school function, you know that pitiful and comprehensive, you know, so you just quit you telling them that, you know, things happening to you or something good's happening for you and you quit bringing friends home because you never know how the Sarge is going to be acting because he may be great, you know, and he may impress your friends or he may start chewing you out, you know, and making you feel like you're just an insignificant piece of crap. And, uh, and again, it's just typical alcoholic behavior. You know, again, I have no idea that alcohol is even the problem in here. I used to wonder sometimes why my dad would go, you know, why a person would go to the trouble to marry somebody and have kids just to make them all feel like terrible pieces of, you know, garbage. You know, what was that all about? And I'm a little kid trying to figure this stuff out. A little kid trying to figure this stuff out. Because I'm growing up in the 50s and the 60s and, you know, I'm watching Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, you know, and what's going on there ain't close to what's going on back here. But on the outside, it sure as hell looks that way you know, and stuff, because, you know, I mean, you know, maybe that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Hey, what happens in an alcoholic home stays in an alcoholic home, you know, I mean, that was pretty much, you know, the stuff that went in our house stayed in our house. We learned that right out of the gate. You know, when you walked outside, it was perfect, and my mom made sure we were clean, and we had good lunches, and she took good care of us, and she loved us to the best of her ability, and took care of us to the best of her ability with all the dysfunction and crap that was going on in a house that was just insane. I mean, I lived in a house, you know, I watched my parents, I mean, hate was the number one thing going on there. There was that, you know, and I loved, you know, how, you know, um, Lori was talking about, you know, parents staying together for the kids, you know, because that was my mom's thing. You know, we always, once after she had divorced my dad and we're all, you know, us girls were all grown, we're sitting around with my mom one day and it's like, Mom, how come you stayed with dad, you know? And she goes, well, I really did it for you kids. And we're like, gee whiz, what can we get you for Christmas next year? <laughs> You know, but I know today that my mom did the very best that she could. How fortunate we are that we have the information at our, you know, at our disposal about alcoholism and Al-Anon. You know, my mom never heard of those things when she was in the deal there, you know. And she was the person, you know, you made your bed, you lied in it, you know, and that's just the way that it had to go down. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot of uh, anger and resentment towards my mom when I got to this program, you know, for, you know, staying with my dad and, and subjecting us to all of that, you know, behavior. But what I know today, you know, is going to open meetings of Al-Anon and sitting there with women that were my mom's age who, who described to me what it was like being a, you know, a woman in the 50s or something. My mom didn't drive. She didn't have a job. 
you know, she really did do what she thought was the best thing to take care of. And, uh, you know, and you will find your answers in these rooms if you do open up your mind, you know, and here, I, I don't think I ever could have heard that from my mom, but I sure could hear it from you, you know, and then I can take it to my mom, and, uh, and we have a terrific relationship with that. But anyway, I grew up in this alcoholic home. It's total wackiness and bizarreness, and, um, uh, and my dad got out of the military when I was in my teens, and so, and up until this point, we lived in Europe and all up and down the East Coast. We moved to California in the, in the 60s, and let me tell you, there's no rules and regulations in California in the 60s. You know, nothing, nothing going on there at all, and, um, and, uh, uh, and my dad had all these just like insane rules all the time, which he was always constantly changing because he's alcoholic and they like to do that to you all the time. Just when you think you got it figured out, we're going to go to the left. And uh, so, you know, that's why Al-Anons are so smart and quick on their feet, because you got to be, you know, if you're going to deal with those guys. And so, uh, but, um, you know, my dad had all, you know, so now we're, us girls are starting to get older. We're starting to date, really hard to date in my house because you got to... Um, uh, bring home, you know, these guys to meet my dad, and my dad has a lot of rules and regulations about dating. My dad's over six foot tall. He's got one eyebrow he can raise over his forehead. He looks like Satan himself when he's standing there. And we would bring these little weenie guys home to meet my dad, and, uh, and my dad would be giving them the master sergeant drill, you know, and all this, and, you know, where are we going? What time are, you, are we going to be back? And what part of their anatomy he's going to remove if we were not returned in the virginal condition of which we left the house in the first place? So it's really hard to get a second date in my house. <laughs> Damn near impossible. You know, guys will bring you home early, shake your hand at the door, thank you, but nobody's worth this. You know, that's just kind of the way that that, that, that that goes on. And that's pretty much the way I remembered it until my sister would tell me, you know, Dad was that way. There's no doubt he's intimidating, but the fact that he always had a firearm or a hand grenade didn't help matters any either. <laughs> you know, but it's again how I'm affected by the family disease of alcoholism is my dad always had a gun and he always had a hand grenade. He was always going to blow up the mailman or the Helms Bakery guy or because somebody is always ticking him off and making him mad. You know, but again, you know, I have no qualms with being the non-drinker in the house, you know, and being, uh, you know, how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism and how I get just as sick as the alcoholic. Because as it says in our literature, whenever good sense tells us there's something wrong with this behavior, we still hide, you know, what we know and how we feel. You know, because, and, and the reason for that is because I have to hide it. You know, because this is my dad, you know, and this is the house that I'm living in, and I've got to make some kind of justification out of the behavior that's going on, so it's okay for me to be here. And, and, and when the other kids, you know, in the block are telling me how crazy my dad and what a lunatic my dad is, you know, I'm the oldest, so it's my job to defend the honor of my family. And that means I gotta kick some butt, you know, and, and, and you know, and even though I know he's crazy as alone, I can't let you say that it's alone. You know, and then the sick behavior just starts that what other people think becomes more important than what actually is going on. That's why I like to call the family disease of alcoholism, it's really just the big disease of lies, you know, I mean and and, and I get just as caught up in it as the alcoholic got caught up in it. And, um, you know, and right here, you know, with my dad, I have to let you know, my dad died. He died when he was 55 years old. He died the disease that they talk about in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I can't even, I'm not even going to tell you the last words my father said to me. They were so vile and so vulgar. I'm not on this podium. This is where the family disease of alcoholism took my dad. You know, and, and when I got to Al-Anon, let me tell you, I was not a happy camper at all about any of that stuff that went on. And um, I had a lot of problems, a lot of problems with a lot of the things, you know, that happened with my dad. And, um, and when my dad died, um, he died in, um, he died on, on Friday the 13th, of course, and um, uh, in October of uh, 1981. And I had just started coming to Al-Anon in June of 1981. So June, July, August, September, October barely four months in, 
not even close to loving and kind in this program, not even, even looking at it yet. And so, uh, and when he had passed away, all his care had fallen to me because my mom had finally since divorced him after all his girls moved away. Thanks, Mom. And, uh, and, uh, and all his care, because I was the oldest, had fallen to me, you know, because that's just the way it was. And, uh, and I remember being in the hallway and the doctor coming out telling me that my dad had died. And my sisters and I were like, ding dong, the witch is dead, da da da, you know. And I don't tell you the story because I'm proud of it. I tell you the story because this is where the family disease of alcoholism takes a family. But you would be glad to see someone gone because, like, the reign of terror is over. And that's just exactly how I looked at it. You know, it's just goodbye, you know. Don't forget to write whatever the deal is. And, and, um, and I had a lot of problems with this. And, uh, but I really did think that when my dad died, it was done. Over. And um, so, uh, you know, but then it, it amazed me how, you know, several, you know, weeks later or whatever, it didn't, you know, even though my dad is now gone, how all those feelings... They weren't gone, you know, and I, and I really share this with people, especially if there's new Al-Anons in here, because if you're thinking about killing the alcoholic, if that actually worked, we would have all the Al-Anon meetings in the prison system, you know, I mean, it would just, if that fixed it, you know, then that would be, that, that would be the answer, wouldn't it, you know, but I'm here to tell you that it doesn't fix it, you know, the alcoholic maybe kicks off you know, the family disease of alcoholism, but once I grab a hold of it, it's mine. I'm running with it now. I don't need the alcoholic anymore. I still have all that thinking and all those feelings to deal with all the time, whether the alcoholic is there or not. That, you know, th this is why it is about me. And uh, so I had a lot of issues about my dad, tons of them, and uh, I did a lot of work in the program about it. You know, because I did everything my sponsor asked me to do. I did all the step work, all the writing, but it didn't ever seem to matter, boy. For whatever reason, something, somebody would say something, some little, you know, memory tripper thing would happen and I would think about all the things my dad had done to make us feel bad about who we were and being girls and all that stuff and boy I would just get all ticky and miserable all over again and I don't know how you are but when I'm just feeling crappy I just love to take that home and share it with the people I love and care about the most <laughs> spread it spread it just keep on spreading that disease and uh, and I remember one time talking with my sponsor about how unhappy I was and she said you know Larsine you know, Al-Anon isn't about the problem. We know what the problem is. Al-Anon is about solutions. And we mission for you. And you've done all the step work I've asked you to do, and I'm really happy with that. But we're going to work and we're going to now move into a solution mode. You know, we've uncovered it. Now, now, now we've got to deal with it in this garden. And she goes, I'm going to give you an assignment, and you're not going to like it. She always said you're not going to like it, because I never like anything they ever say in Al-Anon. It always seems so stupidly trite and dumb for the massive, massive problems I am looking at. And... Um, she says, but I want you to go home and I want you to think about a good thing your dad has done. And my natural reaction right out of the gate is there's no such thing. Because again, what I know today about the family disease of alcoholism is it never wants you to think that there's anything good in your life. Again, that's another lie that goes on there that keeps you in despair and darkness and hopelessness. You know, and uh, so of course, you know, there's no such animal as that. And, uh, but one thing that I learned right out of the gate when I first started coming to Al-Anon, and this is a blessing, because it, it definitely unearned one, but I remember hearing in the beginning, you have to be willing. You have to be willing to do something to be different in your life. So I was, I've always, since I walked in the door, been willing. And so, um, you know, and I told her I would try, but I couldn't guarantee anything, and she never asked me to guarantee anything. She always just asked me to try. So, you know, I went home, and I don't know how long it took, a week or two weeks, and I remembered that my dad taught me how to drive, and if you're going to marry an alcoholic of your own and live in Southern California, it is a skill you simply must have, you know, so... Uh, so I was, so I, you know, he taught me how to drive, and I'm thinking, you know, she's not going to like this. This isn't very much, you know, at all, but you know how sponsors are, you know, and if, uh, you know, it, I, I don't care what you do, you know, I'm here to tell you, 
you know, sponsors are like, the, they're your own personal cheering section. You know, why you would not want one, I cannot even begin to imagine, you know. Um, and because I don't, I, you know, no matter what I would do, she would act like I had the cure for cancer, you know, or something, you know. Every, as long as I was willing to follow, you know, and try and do something different. And I remember, you know, going to her and telling her, oh, you know, that I had this, you know, okay, I have something. Oh, yay, yay, she's so happy, you know, we sat down in the chair, she holds my hands, you know, and I'm just thinking, oh, she ain't going to like this. And I said, you know, he taught me how to drive. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, again, you know. Okay, and now I know why, because when the sponsor gives you part one, I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know, part two is coming of an assignment, okay? <laughs> I get you on that first one, so, and now I get part two of my, of my assignment. Part two of my assignment, you know, is now whenever I have all these negative thoughts about stuff that my dad did, I'm just supposed to replace it with this one positive. You know, because she went on to tell me, you know, you're not going to get your childhood over again. That stuff is done, and it's, and, and it's not to be yours again, you know, but, but you keep giving up. This day that you have right now that is so precious that you are never going to get again thinking about a bunch of crap that you can't do a darn thing about anymore, you know, except to move on with your life. You want a shot at a good life, then you've got to do the things that you've got to do to get a shot at a good life. And living in the past is not one of them. You know, your dad died an alcoholic, being, you know, with the, all of his children being glad he was dead. How much more do you want? You know, and I don't mean to tell you that I had this kind of horrific childhood and then my dad, you know, or my sponsor rather, gave me this assignment and now everything is just wonderful team. You know, that is not exactly what happened. What she gave me, she gave me a very precious gift. She gave me the gift of forgiveness. And never, un ever underestimate it. It says in our Al-Anon literature that forgiveness is no favor. You know, when I forgave my dad, then I was just able to move on and I got the shot at a good life because I was able to do that. I'm the one that got the gift now. You know, and now when I look at it, and I've been to so many AA meetings, you know, I know that my dad was a sick alcoholic, you know, and it was the alcoholism that said and did those things, you know, but that, you know, my dad was the man that was in there that I know loved us as much as his disease would allow. And that's just the way that that is, and nothing is going to make that be any different. Um, when he passed away, though, um, like I said, I was responsible, and my mom had divorced him, and my dad was a... Uh, World War II veteran, a Korean War veteran, decorated veteran, and um, so there's a lot of pomp and circumstance as far as the military is concerned, but he was cremated at his own wishes, and, and they uh, had brought his ashes to me and the flag to me and his medals to me, and it, as it turned out, I was by myself that day when that delivery was made. My sisters weren't there, my husband wasn't there, and so here I am alone with my dad, his ashes and all this stuff, so I picked up his ashes and I went down downstairs, put him in the garage, put him on a shelf, and I said, you sit here and you think about what you did. And, uh, <laughs> and he sat there for a long time, a long, 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 long time, until my other sick sister came and rescued him and all this stuff. And, because my dad, you know, he, my dad was just always this drunken talk all the time. You know, he was always like, when I die, I want you girls to uh, take my ashes and bury it in the tree so my grandsons, because he was really ticked about having girls and not having boys, and we all had boys. I mean, my dad always gets his way one way or the other. And, uh, but at, at that time, we didn't have any children, so how we knew, I have no idea. But at any rate, he just said, so my grandsons can play on the branches of the tree, you know, this drunken, whatever stuff. And, uh, so, and, and so my sister, you know, took him up to Sacramento, bought a tree, buried his ashes in the tree. Tree like was dead within a week. I mean, <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> so my sister, sick 
pre-Alan on that she was. She dug up his ashes, sifted it through a thingy, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, I just, she ended up having him under her bed for a long time. Then, my, then, she got, then she remarried some guy who didn't know it was my dad's ashes, and he took him to the dump, you know. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> now, this is an okay story to tell here, but do not tell it at work, okay? And just look at you, horrified, you know. And <laughs> But here we appreciate it. We can appreciate the sick humor, you know, and, um, and you know, and sometimes it is so painful, it's the best thing to be able to be able to look back and laugh at it, you know, and stuff. Because, you know, again, the family disease of alcoholism just wants you to live in the pain and the misery and whatever, you know, and I believe that my dad's in a better place now. I believe my dad is sober now, and uh, I believe he watches over. And, um, and I'm really, really grateful for that, and I'm grateful for a sponsor who walked me through all of that, and, uh, because now I got the shot at a good life. And I am so, so grateful for that. But anyway, when I was 17, I met my husband. I should have known there was something wrong with him because my dad liked him right away. That never, ever happened. And, uh, and I went on this date with him, and, I, and we went with this other couple. And, uh, and my husband's several years older than me. Um, I was like 17. He was 24. He'd been married before, had a child, back living with his mom and dad. Clue number two to me that there's something wrong with them, but that went right over my head. And uh, I remember we were going back to, uh, back to where he was living with his parents, and uh, uh, after we'd been on this bowling date, he stopped at a liquor store and he'd ask me what I'd like to drink. Well, I'm 17 years old, and there are rules and regulations in the state of California about drinking. So I proceeded to tell him the rules and regulations, you know, and I'm, a, you know, I'm an underage minor buddy, and, uh, and I know he heard what he still hears today when he doesn't want to hear what I'm saying. He heard blah, 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 because... Uh, he went in and got a gallon of Red Mountain wine, if nothing else, to impress me what he can consume in sheer volume alone in one evening. And, you know, and I don't drink. You know, it's, you know I, I don't drink. But, but we're going back to his house. He's got this gallon of wine. We're with this other couple. And, uh, and we're going to play a game. And uh, now my whole life, you know, uh, you know, I'm a rule and regulation person. I, 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 like, I like making lists. I'm a list checker. I love dun, dun, dun. That's my favorite thing in the universe to do. And... Uh, it's just, but you know, it's again, it's who I am and it's okay to be that way. It works for me, you know, but I don't ask people a lot of stuff and part of that's being raised up in the house that I was because there's nobody to ask. You just don't speak, you don't talk, you just don't do it. You just have to figure it out on your own. So I'm a figure-outer and uh, so, you know, so I don't ask people things and, and I don't necessarily, I mean, I just figure it out. I call it information from nowhere because it's floating out in the universe here. I just think it up, lands here, becomes back for me and we're off and running on it, you know, and... Uh, works for me and, 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 and I'm a list maker and I have an index like a Rolodex deal in my head and I have an index card for every conceivable thing that can happen on the face of the planet you know because I got to know what I need to do what's one what's two what's three so I can get through this deal with it and then be able to move on because that's how I have to function you know I just need to be able to check those things off you know and again I don't know if it's from the discipline that I grew up with you know, because my sisters aren't necessarily that way, but it's, just, but it's who I am and I embrace that part of it. It's just how I like to do things. It's how I'm comfortable doing things. And so, um, you know, so now I'm on the state with this guy and um, we're going to play this game and it's a legitimate board game. It was called Pass Out. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of it, but it's a legitimate board game. It had rules. I read them on the inside of the thing there. And... Uh, in order to win this game, you have to drink. Now, I don't drink because it's against the law to drink. But I have a lot of rules about how things go on in my life. And I will sometimes, occasionally, I have rules that will conflict with other rules, so I will have to ship them up. Now, I have one rule that's one of the most important rules in the universe, and that's I must win every game I play. So, you know, I 
then I'm going to have to move the drinking rule down under that rule a little bit if that's what I have to do. And, uh, and I did, and I don't think I drank more than half a glass of wine, didn't have to drink much to win the game. You know, that's what it was all about. And then, of course, he had a lot to drink. And, um, and now it's, you know, time for him to take me home. And, uh, but, you know, and this is where, you know, again, information from nowhere lands here, becomes fact for me, because believe you me, I got an index card about what my life is going to be like. I'm 17 years old. I'm growing up in this house. My parents each other. I mean, you can cut the tension in my house with a knife. Nobody wants to be there. It's awful place to be. And I'm going to tell you, this is not going to happen to me, boy. I'm going to get married to the nice sky in the universe. We're going to have the best kids. We're just going to be the most, we're going to be the Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed family, you know, that I know is out there. Boy, that is on my card for sure. And this guy that I'm going to marry, he's not going to drink because I'm 17 years old now. I know drinking is a problem in my house with my dad. You know, but here I go out with this guy now. And up until this point, I've only dated little weenie, pencil geeky pushing A students just like myself. You know, and now here's Butch. You know, he's several years older than me, a hippie guy. He's got a beard down to here, hair down to here, tattoos. No underwear, another clue they're an alcoholic, just in case you're wondering. You know it's true, okay? You know it's true. I don't even want to get into the big discussion about it, but you know it's true. So, um, you know, but, you know, but here he is, you know, he, he's had a lot to drink, you know, and, but he's got his hands in the proper three o'clock position on the steering wheel and, uh, you know, and, and what I found out about it, you know, and, and that revelation that happened to me today, again, information from nowhere lands here and becomes fact for me is, is because even though I said I'd never marry anybody that drinks like my dad, and even though this guy right out of the gate is drinking and is drunk, there's a huge difference because when my dad gets drunk, boy, he likes to yell at you and hit you and smack you around. Which gets drunk, he just wants to hug you and kiss you and tell you how pretty you are. And, uh, and there's a huge difference. I can work with that. You know, I can do something with this. This is workable. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, you know, so pretty much right out of the gate, you know, we, we, we were together. It was very, very difficult for me to uh, date Butch, basically, because he couldn't remember my name. But uh, if you're going to date an alcoholic, you can't let a little weenie thing like that stop you. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? You know, I mean, he'd call me up and go, Lucerne, Lorraine, whatever. And uh, I, I'm here to tell you, he knows my name now really, really well. He had no problem with it anymore. But, uh, and I know my name is different, and it's weird, and, uh, and, uh, my dad named me Larsine. Um, my dad was very unhappy having girl children, and, um, but uh, I was firstborn. And because I was firstborn, my dad was hugely, hugely proud of his Scottish heritage. I mean, that was his claim to fame. And uh, don't ask me why that was just his deal. And, uh, and because I wasn't a boy, that was a really horrible thing. But because I was firstborn, I got this special dispensation. I got named after a town in Scotland because he couldn't name me after him, so he named me after a town in Scotland. And so this was a big, big deal in my family, you know, that I, that I got this very, very special name. Well, you know, after I was in Al-Anon for a little bit, um, and my dad has already since passed away, I go to the, okay, this is way before computers and Google or anything. We have places called libraries, and they have books in them, and you would go there to find out information. And so I, so I, I went to the library to look up Larson, Scotland, and I couldn't find it. So I went to the reference librarian, you know, because it's a little weenie local library that we had and she was going to go to the downtown library and look it up for me and see if she could find out any more information. She told me to come back in a week. I did. Nope, never been Larsen, Scotland. Okay, now I'm getting ticked again. And so I take this to my sponsor because this really sucks, you know. And I mean, one more time, my name is a bunch of crap. And, uh, and um, a friend of mine that's in AA is a big golfer and, he's, and he goes to Scotland because that's like the golf mecca of the universe. 
And he told me, well, you know, Scotland's a very old country. Maybe there was Larsen Scotland a long, long time ago, and it just doesn't exist anymore. Why don't you let me check that out before you go crazy? So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, so off he goes. He's gone for two weeks, comes back. Never been Larsen Scotland. Okay, now I'm going to change my freaking name. I'm done. I'm just over it and getting angrier and angrier. And one more time, you know, sharing that anger with everybody and going nuts about it. And one time I'm with my husband at his uh, Saturday night big AA speaker meeting, and one of our friends in AA comes up to me and he goes, Oh my God, Larsen, you're not going to believe this. I found out Larsen is a Scottish word. I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding me. What does it mean? He goes, it's Scottish for father was drunk when daughter was born, so daughter got a weird name. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure that is not a true story. I am almost positive of that. But, you know, what he went on to say to me is, you know, Larsine, I'm alcoholic like your dad was alcoholic. And he goes, you know, and I don't know where he came up with Larsine. He goes, but I believe that he believed that it was the name of the town in Scotland. Where he read it or how he read it or, you know, where he got it from, who the heck knows, and it doesn't matter. You know, it's the gift any less because it's not wrapped the way you think that it's. You know, one more time, left to my own devices, I'm going to change my name. You know, I'm just going to go to that negative thinking. I'm just going to go to that everything is horrible, you know, but when I bring it to you guys and you just show me a different way of looking at it and I get the shot, I get one more time the shot of the good life if I choose to take it. You know, attitude is everything here. You know, I'm amazed by that all of the time. And now I'm really kind of proud of my name, and I think that that's exactly what my dad meant for it to be, you know. And I know there's not, no such place, but I always tell people if I ever win the lotto, the first thing I'm doing is going to Scotland, buying some little funky town, naming it Larsine. This was, <laughs> so everything's legit and on the books and uh, <laughs> makes me more comfortable. But anyway, I start dating Butch, and... Um, and uh, you know, and he's a drinker and a drug user, and I mean, dr and drugs are a huge rule and regulation violation. I mean, oh my gosh, I can't even go there, so I don't even go there. I never even look at that part of it or anything. And he hangs out with all the biker dudes and some nasty people and stuff like that. And just to show you, you know, my relationship to all of these people, their nickname for me was Mrs. Walton. That's just what they called me, <laughs> for any of you that are familiar with that, because I'm just the good little goody two-shoes and all that hubbub that's going on all of the time. And, uh, you know, and there was all kinds of stuff and all kinds of, uh, you know, problems and, that go along with that lifestyle. But at the same token, you know, it was very, very exciting for me. You know, I just, I liked being around all of the, the stuff that was going on. And, uh, uh, and it just, you know, it, there was, like I say, all kinds of signs that this is not where, this is not where you're supposed to be going to be doing. But went there anyway. And, um, and I was never, you know, a person to do any of the drug stuff or any of that stuff, but I hung around with it and I, and I enjoyed the excitement of it. And there was a lot of fun. And it's so important for me to remember that there was a lot of fun that went on in those days, this terrible stuff that went on. But the family disease of alcoholism never wants me to see the good time that I had in anything. It's always about the negative part of it. And it's so easy to forget. You know, and it's really important for me to remember that because nobody handcuffed me and took me on the, you know, growing up, you know, you know, with my dad and, and, uh, uh, and the house that I grew up in, you know, like I say, you know, working all of it through that stuff, you know, forgiveness for me was really difficult because I, because my interpretation of forgiveness was letting him off the hook, you know, and I wasn't going to let him off the hook because he was the dad and I was the kid and that wasn't fair, you know, and that's, you know, again, my information from nowhere. Lance here becomes back for me and I'll wreck my life and I'll wreck the lives of my family around me hanging on to him. You know, and I know today that I grew up with a, bis a lot of misinformation, but I'm hardwired to think that way. And I recognize that today as well. I'm just, that's just the way I'm going to think. 
That's just the way I'm going to think. But again, when I bring it to you guys, you separate the truth from the lies and give me a shot at a good life if I choose to take it. Left to my own devices, I'm doomed over and over and over again. But anyway, Butch and I dated for a couple years, had a lot of fun behind the drinking and, the, and, you know, and all the stuff that was going on. But then what ended up happening is I got pregnant. And doesn't matter if it was a big deal for you, huge deal for me, because I'm a rule and regulation person. And now I've broken the big rule and the big regulation. You know, and later on when our life got really, really bad behind the drinking and the drug use, I was sure it was because God was punishing me, because now I've broken the big rule and regulation. And, uh, you know, and what I came to find out after I was in Al-Anon for a while is that if you're going to screw around and not use any birth control, you might get pregnant. You know, just a fact of life. But if you're sitting there blaming God for every, you know, for everything that happens to you, you know, for every decision that you have to make that doesn't go the way you think it is, you know, then you are sitting. You might as well get on up and walk out that door if you think it's a punishing God that's trying to get you. You know, what I've come to find here from my own experience and that of many people I have heard in Al-Anon and in Alcoholics Anonymous is there is nothing but a loving God here who wants you to be happy, joyous, and free. That's all God wants for you. Period. And he puts the people in your life so that you... You know, because that has definitely been my experience. I always tell people, if I'm not doing well here, it's not because I have not been well-loved. I have been so well-loved, it's unbelievable to me. But anyway, um, uh, Butch and I, uh, it, it was a big deal to me at our first, in Southern California, we have our AFT convention, our Al-Anon Family Group Southern California Convention. And I remember the very first year I was in Al-Anon, you know, they, we do a deal where we get two adjoining hotel rooms and we cram as many women into these two hotel rooms as we possibly can. And my very first AFG, you know, I'm not even a year in the program yet. I'm up there in the room with these women, and, and we're having the meeting after the meeting, and, and uh, there's seven of us in the room. And for whatever reason, what I hear is I hear them sharing their deepest, darkest secret. I can't even tell you if that's true or not. That's just what I heard. So when it came around to my turn, I told them how I was, had to get married because I was pregnant. And it turns out seven women in the room, six of them had to get married because they were pregnant. <laughs> and we decided the seventh was the sickest because she married an alcoholic and did not have to. I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, how bad is that? And, you know, I mean, really. So, uh, you know, and I got to learn again valuable, valuable things, you know, and this is really what it's all about, just looking at things just a little bit differently. Because I'll tell you where I was in that point in my life, because, um, you know, as our life was getting progressively worse behind the drinking, I was blaming this little kid this little baby that I had, because if I hadn't had this baby, then I wouldn't be stuck in this horrible marriage and I wouldn't have this crappy. And I don't tell you this because I'm proud of it. I tell you this because this is where the family disease of alcoholism takes me, that I would blame a little child for, you know, for the stuff, you know, and that's not where I'm supposed to be doing. That's not how I want to be living. The family disease of alcoholism has taken And uh, anyway, so I ended up, we got, we, we got married a, a month after our son was born. So if you ask me if I was pregnant when I got married, no, sorry, wasn't, wasn't pregnant. So you have to figure that all out on your own, okay? Sorry, you're not going to volunteer any information. And, uh, and, um, and so, you know, and our, and our life just got, you know, really, really crazy. I remember um, uh, the day after we got married, up until this point, I never talked to my husband about his drinking drug use, but the day after we got married, I sat him in the kitchen chair and I told him the rules and regulations of the marriage. <laughs> So we can get a babysitter once a month, but that's it. You know, otherwise, we're working. We have to save money. We have a, a child and responsibility, obligations. This is the plan. Do you understand? He nodded his head like this, which I took as affirmative. What I know today, he was so freaking loaded. He just heard the blah, 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 blah part, and he was just doing this thing. You know, because day two after we got married, day two after we got married, he does not come home all night long. This is a huge violation of the rules and regulations I have sat down. And I watched my mom for years do the silent treatment. I am proud 
to tell you, my husband begged for the silent treatment. He begged for it. He never got it, not one time. I was like one of those little Pekingese dogs, you know, when you walk in the door, he jokes, you know, I mean, and, and, and I don't even know, I mean, I don't even know where I learned this language, you know, I just like, I would just curse unbelievably, you know, like, because again, information from nowhere lands here, becomes back for me, because if I curse with the right mothers and effers in the right order, he would have some spiritual awakening you know, thing going on and stuff like that. He jokes that I talk as fast as I do, because I only had so much time from when he came home to when he passed out to tell him everything it was, that I had to tell him, because by God, he was going to hear it, you know. It's just absolute insanity. Now, I positively want you to know the driving force behind my husband and I getting married was definitely the fact that we had this child. There was no doubt about that. But I want you to know that, uh, that uh, when Butch and I got married, we got married in the church in front of a minister, um, that Butch was sober that day, that uh, we were, you know, I loved him, I believe he loved me, as here, as any two people are who are getting married. We absolutely, truly wanted to love each other and take care of each other, you know, and honor those vows. Absolutely, without a doubt. But what Butch didn't know and what I didn't know was it wasn't just Butch and Marcin that got married that day. It's also the family disease them. And I'm here to tell you the family disease of alcoholism doesn't love or cherish anything or anybody. It means to tear your family apart through the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic. It's totally irrelevant. Absolutely, totally irrelevant. And so anyway, uh, you know, so we set off on this absolute insane, you know, just roller coaster ride. And, um, and it just keeps getting progressively worse as, as the disease does. I remember him coming home one time and, um, and waking me up like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, which shows you how drunk he was. And he was, and he, and he was shaking me and, and demanding to have his dinner. And he'd never done anything like that before. And it scared me. It reminded me so much of the, you know, the house I'd grown up in. And I ran into the kitchen, but I remembered who he was dealing with. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and I made this Mexican casserole to call for one jalapeno pepper. But I'd cut up every single one of them and stuffed it in there, you know. And he ate it, you know. And then he's doing what I want him to do. He's in the bathroom puking his brains out. And I'm in the uh, uh, bedroom giggling in my pillow. Because I don't know how you feel, but when my alcoholic throws up, oh, my God, I get a warm feeling that just lasts me for days. And, uh, you know, and this is where, you know, again, the family disease of alcoholism takes us in a relatively very short amount of time. And, uh, you know, and it just keeps getting progressively worse and progressively worse. And um, uh, I got called, you know, if my husband were with me on this trip and you'd asked him about his drinking he, and you asked him to describe it, he'd say pig. That's his word, not mine. Um, to give you an example of that, you know, I got a call one day from his friends whom I affectionately refer to as scum of the earth people, and these were the drug dealers. And, and, uh, and my husband was over at their house, and he was so drunk and so loaded that if I did not come get him, they, the drug dealers, were going to call the police. This is what's going on. So I put on my cape, and off I go to get him. And, uh, and I remember getting there, and, uh, and I'll never forget this. It's still such a fond memory. It's the drug dealer's looking through the Venetian blinds to see if I've arrived. And he's in the drug dealer's bushes. And uh, so I got him up and got him in the car, and I drive home and put our infant son, you know, get out of the car to take our son and go put him in his crib. And I come down, and my husband's made the mistake of getting out of the street or getting out of the car, and he's fallen in the street. He's cracked his head open. You know, he's bleeding out of his head. I'd like to tell you I'm worried about him. I am not. I just want him off the street so nobody can frickin' see what a fool he's making of himself one more time. You know, he's 180 pounds. I can't pick him up. He's just like a wet washcloth. So I heave him up over the curb by the ankles. I'm dragging him down the sidewalk. Little trickle of blood following right behind us, leaving a little trail there. Why we call these people normie, I have not a clue. But this guy's driving down the street, and, um, you know, and, and I'm dragging this guy, bleeding by the head down the sidewalk. And the guy stops his car and says, are you having a problem? That's, that's what the army people think. Yeah, I'm having a problem. 
So my husband's fallen and he can't get up. And so the guy, you know, he helps me. Now again, I've never had an injured husband like this. I need to make a card on the spot because I don't have an index card for this. So, in, you know, instantaneously I decide he must be upstairs in bed because head injury must be in bed. Don't ask me where this crap come from. I just, oh, I gotta do it. So anyway, so not only do I have to get him in the house, I have to get him up a flight of stairs. So we're going up the flight of stairs. Now he and I are talking back and forth, not very politely. And Mr. Good Samaritan no longer wishes to participate. And so we get him to the top of the stairs, and that guy's out of the house like a shot. And Butch is on the bed, big puddle of blood. I want him to die desperately, but I don't want my fingerprints anywhere on the evidence of it. You know, so I call 911. I'm hysterical. They don't know what's going on. They send a hook and ladder truck, the police. You know, I mean, my mother, I mean, everything was out there. And uh, I'm in the bedroom with the baby. Ooh, my mom's trying to console me. The Redondo Beach police come in and they go, Mrs. Gantner, your husband says he injured himself because you pushed him down a flight of stairs. <laughs> now, I told the police I hadn't done that, but if they prop him up, I'd be happy to push him down in front of the Redondo Beach police because that's just where we go. For, worse, worse and worse and worse. And they told me that wouldn't be necessary. They clean him up. He only needs like three stitches. But, he's, but, you know, he's so drunk he can't stand up, so they're going to take him by ambulance. I don't know how your neighborhood is, but 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, hook and ladder truck, my neighbors are all out front. And my husband is a very friendly guy, still is. He always knows all the neighbors up and down the street. I speak to no one. And uh, so, so he comes out on the gurney, and all the neighbors are out there, how you, Frank? How you, Joe? You know, his usual friendly self. Which would happen? Marcin pushed me down a flight of stairs. <laughs> And they all believe him, you know, because all they ever see is easygoing drunk butch and banshee screaming whack-a-mole Larcine. And I'm not the person that's drinking here. And how do you explain that to people? How do you explain that to people? And then we're going to have a family reunion. My husband's one of nine kids, a big, big deal. And, and, you know, and I make him raise his right hand, promise me, you will be sober that day. You know, and he promises me. And I know he meant it with every fiber of his being that he wanted to be sober that day. But see, what I don't know and what he doesn't know is that he has the disease of alcoholism. And once he takes one drink, it's all over. There is no more choice. There is no more wife, husband, love, promises, nothing. There's just where he's going to go with that next drink and where, that, where, and where it's going to take him. He doesn't know and I don't know all that. And so the day comes and gets me so drunk and so loaded he can't even stand up. And I am just so angry. Now, I'm here to tell you no matter how drunk or blacked out my husband has been, he's never once ever raised a hand to hit me because that's just not who he is. But that day I started poking him in the chest and egging him to hit me because let's just take it to the next level. Let's just go there. And all of a sudden I became very conscious of our two little boys who were five and three years old at that time standing on either side of me, yanking at my pant legs, begging me, Mommy, Mommy, please stop yelling at Daddy. And I wish I could tell you I had a moment of clarity at that time, but I did not. What I started doing is yelling and screaming at those little boys. How dare they tell me to stop yelling at their dad when, you know, um, he's the reason our life is this piece of crap. And by the time I get done screaming at those little boys, I watch my drunken husband walking out the front door, and I, the sober mother, say, and the drunken dad turns to the sober mom, I tell you this story because I'm proud of it. I tell you this story because the system took me, and I'm not the person that's drinking. I'm supposed to be the good guy, yet I cannot even recognize my own behavior. You know, it's, I love in our literature where it says how we become just an irritable without knowing it. And why? Because we try and force solutions. You know, I'm always trying to make it happen the way I think it's supposed to be happening. You know, and I'm, and I'm set myself up for doom that way over and over again. And somewhere in all that insanity, I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and um, uh, they had great literature on the table, nice people at the meeting, you know, but not for me. Just absolutely not for me. Yet when I was sitting in that front row, if they would have said, Larcine, do you want your life to be different? God, do I want my life to be different? Seen, what are you willing to do about it? Absolutely nothing because it's not my fault. You fix him and then I'll be okay. 
You know, I want the piece of literature that says how to get them to stop drinking and do what you want them to do. I think that's a, doesn't even sound good. Ooh, be a number one seller, I think. And, uh, but, um, so that was my, you know, my career. And then, you know, uh, you know, and I don't know how much more drinking went on. Another, you know, couple, you know, years of drinking and, uh, you know, getting really, really bad and very, very fearful for my husband to OD or, you know, drink himself to death, whatever. And I was really hoping to be a widow. I was kind of rooting for it. And someone once said, why didn't you just leave? And I'm like, and let him win? I don't think so. That's not going to happen. If he goes, it's feet first. That's how he's going to go out this door. And uh, so anyway, you know, he ended up getting arrested for drunk driving, which is absolutely no big deal for him. I mean, he's been arrested lots of times for drunk driving. And, and, and just that same evening that he got arrested for drunk driving, I had heard about this hospital program that they had opened. And uh, it's brand new. And uh, I got the name of the place. And and all this stuff and my husband got arrested and the next day I picked him up and I gave him the number and he made the call to this place and into it and uh, they had to detox him from all the drugs and everything he was using and he, and he quit drinking on his own and stuff before and gone through the DTs pretty thirstily so he had to stay in the psychiatric unit and I remember getting to the end of the double doors and he called me back and I was sure his cousin was in his pocket and he handed me the Valium that he brought in case of emergency. And he'd never parted with the Valium in his life, so I knew something was different here. And I went home and I took it because I was a flaming bastard. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, I slept like on, I don't know, 14 hours on a 10 milligram Valium, you know. But in my own defense, I was very, very tired. And, uh, you know, and if it was up to me today, he'd still be there. I like the whole setup. They lock him up for you every night. They feed him. They watch him for you. It's just so much easier, you know, just easier. And I would have settled for that. I would have settled for that. That would have been enough for me. You know, to cheer him up, we had a, you know, one son in kindergarten, one in preschool. I would take him what the boys had, you know, made in kindergarten and preschool, but no, he wanted to show me what he made in occupational therapy that day, you know. It's like, you know, we'd hang it up on the refrigerator. Oh, look, Daddy's sober. Woohoo! You know, this is going to be fun. And, uh, you know, and back then they didn't do any family, nothing. My husband got sober in 1979. It was all about the alcoholic. They told me I should go to A Al-Anon meeting. So I marched my butt right back over to that A Al-Anon meeting that I'd been to before. They saved the last 10 minutes at our meetings for newcomer questions. So when the last 10 minutes come, I couldn't wait to get my hand up. I raised my hand. I said, I was here about a year and a half ago. I asked you how to get my husband sober, and you didn't tell me. I got him sober now, and I'm not going to tell you how I did it. <laughs> and do you know what they said to me? You got that right, because I am here to tell you, keep coming back. Because when you have said, I mean, when they tell you to keep coming back, that is because you have said the stupidest, most, you have no other hope but to keep coming back. There is no other hope they can give you. That is where you are at. And, because um, that is definitely where I was at. You know, and then my husband, you know, so I didn't keep coming back. He's sober, I win, game over, nanny, nanny, nanny. And, uh, you know, but, you know, after six months, I got tired of him going to AA. I'm like, God, there's only 12 steps. How stupid are you? I mean, what is taking so long here? But he made it clear to me that AA was the most important thing in his life. You know, and then what happened for him happened for him. You know, he just kept getting healthier and healthier in the program. And I kept getting sicker and sicker around him getting healthier and healthier. You know, because as much as I loved his being sober, you know, his sobriety didn't fix me. I didn't know how to turn it off. I didn't know how to turn off being mad all the time. That's all I know how to do is react negatively. I'm hardwired to think that way. His sobriety, you know, wasn't a short circuit for me to change anything. And I was always sure when Butch is a good husband, I'm going to be okay. When he's a good dad, when he's a good provider, you know, when he's sober, those are the things that were going to fix me. And nobody was more shocked than me, me at all. 
So a couple years later, you know, after he's sober almost two years, you know, I started coming to Al-Anon for all the right reasons. I didn't come to get an alcoholic sober. He was doing fine on his own. You know, I came because I was just sick and tired. I knew this wasn't who I was supposed to be. And so, you know, when I get here, boy, I'm a rule and regulation person. What do you do? You read the literature, you go to meetings, you work the steps, you get a sponsor, you be a service. I'm all over it because I have every intention of being president of Al-Anon very shortly. I mean, it's going to happen. You can say you don't have one. I know that's not true. And, uh, you know, so I got a sponsor right away. And I remember the very first time I used her as a sponsor. Um, my husband had had a, a, a dead battery and he asked me to jump it. And I did. And then after I jumped it, he ran out of gas. And this made him angry and he started yelling. So I started yelling right back at him. He stormed off to work. I went upstairs, called my sponsor and reported his behavior. <laughs> and, uh, and when I got done telling her what happened, she told me I owed him an amends, that what I said was unkind and unnecessary. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jeannie doesn't know how we do things in America. And so, because uh, she was from Holland, you know, and so, uh, and that's why I picked her, because I didn't want anybody that could think like me. You know, she was older than me. She never lived with sobriety. You know, why do you want to pick somebody that know, that's like you? Then she'll know what you're thinking. Never good, never good. And so, uh, so uh, you know, so, so obviously she wasn't listening to the story because she missed the, who started it, which I always think is a very, very important part. And, uh, and, and I started telling her the story again because obviously she wasn't listening to all the details. And I hardly got, you know, start, I got maybe partway through it again. And she said, don't tell me what you just told me. I heard you the first time. And another, and another thing, don't ever call me and start a conversation with Butch said or Butch did. I am not Butch's sponsor. I am her. And for what she said and did, she owes her husband an amends. It clicked. End of conversation. I learned valuable lessons. Never call your sponsor first thing in the morning because you've got all day long to think about what she told you to do. <laughs> That'll drive you crazy. And never call your sponsor when you're going to see her that night at a meeting because she's going to want to know if you follow direction. I'm a rule and regulation person. I have no choice. But I don't put anything off, boy. When Bush walked in the door that night at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, whatever it was, I marched right up to him and I said, I'm sorry I let your shitty attitude affect me the way that it did. <laughs> and I'll try and do better in the future. Now, that may not sound like a proper amends, but I'm here to tell you it was as good as amends as I've ever given in my life because that day I was this much willing to follow direction and do something different. And that's just exactly what it takes. No one comes in here and, you know, and if you think you're going to get it like that, that's why you beat yourself out of here. I hear people all the time, I'm not getting it. It's not, it's not working in my life. You know, it's going to take what it's going to take. We start with tiny, tiny steps. And that day I was this much willing to do something different, and that's what put me on the path of recovery. And every day, from that day to this day, this much every single day, I've had this much willingness. I mean, sometimes I have a little bit more, sometimes even a little bit less. But I try and have some willingness every day to happen in my life, and that's what's taken me on the path. You know, I see people here all the time, like I say, trying to beat themselves out of it. You know, you're, you're yourself. You know, if you want what somebody has next to you, then you've got to be doing what they've been doing. If they've been coming here for 5 or 10 or 15 years and doing the deal, then that's what you've got to do if they want. You know, if we could smack you with the serenity wand, we'd do it, you know. <laughs> easier on you, easier on us, you know. But everybody's got to walk their own path through all of this. You know, we just, we just hold each other's hand. That's the deal. And you don't have to do it by yourself. That's even the better deal. Um, I'm just going to share two very quick stories with you because I want you to know how sick I am all the time. Um, when, I'm, when I was uh, 15 years in this program, my youngest son then having a lot of problems with drugs and alcohol. He was about 19 years old at the time. And um, I'm very, very fearful for this kid. And we were at our South Bay Roundup, which is our convention, and all of our friends are there. And, you know, we had wonderful speakers, wonderful workshops. And, you know, you go to that kind of a weekend and you come home and, like, 
serenity is like coming out of every orifice of your body. You know, you're just full of the love and the joy and wah, it's just great. And so, and you're going to just live this way for the rest of your life. And so anyway, I get home. I'm a very disciplined person. I have an exercise program. I've been gone for three days at the Roundup, which means I have done none of my exercise program. Now that I'm home on Sunday, I have to do, make up all three days immediately. Again, information from nowhere lands here. I got to do it. It's just how it works for me. I don't have to make you do it that way, but that's how I have to do it. So I have a treadmill, and i got to get on the treadmill right away. I get in my exercise pose, and next to my treadmill is my son's weight bench. And on this weight bench is a woman's driver's license. Oh, my God. I look at it. It's got information. I love information. Uh, her birthday's on there. She's 32 years old. She lives in Glendora, California. I instantly decide in 10 seconds or less the woman has been in my house, had sex with my 19-year-old Sid. Kid has two kids and wants to call me mom. I mean, I'm all over it. Right away, information lands here. I run in the house. I run in the house. I show my husband the driver's license. Nothing, because the man has no imagination whatsoever. He's got nothing. <laughs> you know, I tell him what I think happened over the weekend. His eyes roll back in his head. He's like, call Carol. Carol's my sponsor now. You whack job, you know. So I call Carol. And Carol, you know, she agrees with Butch. I'm lunatical. And she, you know, and she rarely gives me direction. But that day she told me to shut up. Just shut up. She goes, you know, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? They can die. There's absolutely no doubt about that. That's the worst thing that can happen. That is the worst thing that can happen. She says, but you know what, Larson? It takes just as much thoughts to send good, uh, just as much effort to send good thoughts his way as it does negative ones. Why don't you pray for that kid? Pray good things for him instead of thinking up more crap in your head to pile up on a plate. You know, he doesn't need it and you don't need it. And I end my conversation, as I often do with my sponsor, the mind, because I've been coming. I mean, I've been coming for a long time, but boy, you know, left alone in the garage for 10 seconds. I, I'm in big, because I am hardwired to think negatively, you know, and that's why I run it by you guys. As it turns out, I don't see my son for a day and a half or two because of his school and work schedule and my work schedule. And he comes in a day and a half later with the driver's license in his hand. He says, Mom, what do you do when you find a driver's license? Well, I don't tell him what I do when I find a driver's license. <laughs> It's a bad example. Bad, bad example. Bad, bad. Horrible. Horrible. I'm ashamed of myself. And um, eight years ago, I found out I was going to be a grandma. Stoked beyond belief. I'm so excited. You know, my son's been married a couple of years to my older boy. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, you know, they have the popsicle sticks now, and they know when they're going to have this baby. And, you know, and I've never been a grandma before. Need an index card. Don't have one. You know, so first thing on the card is I must be there when the baby's born. Again, information from nowhere. Don't ask me why. It just is on the card. And it's number one on the list. And so I tell my husband this, and as it turns out, this baby's going to be born in, in uh, May, and I've got like four commitments prior to the birth of this baby on the weekend, you know, that's going to take me out of town. My husband says, you might want to get out of those commitments if you, if you want to be here when the baby's born, you know, and I'm saying, no, I can't because those are Al-Anon commitments. I'll have to honor those commitments. He goes, well, then you might have to accept the fact that you're not going to be here when the baby's going to be born. Well, we'll put you on that one. You know, I mean, that's not going to happen either because the baby's not going to be born on the weekend. Okay, how hard is that? You know, and he's just like, you know, I mean, again, his eyes roll back in his head. You might want to talk to Carol about that. Well, you never talk, to, when you really got a really good plan, never talk to your sponsor, okay? That, they are plan busters, okay? They will just suck the juice right out of that puppy, so don't go there. If, it, if, it, if it's feeling really good to just you, try and hang on to that. You can't share it with your group either because they'll rat you out to your sponsor, so that's, that's. But it's important to me, so I go right to God. I am tight with my God. I don't even know how to say, you know, I just, I just plain old am. You know, I mean, it's just, I, you know, I never had any God nothing when I got here. We never went to church. We never talked about it. Um, I had a, a really, really hard time with a, with a God. I couldn't understand if there's a God. How come 
how come I had the upbringing that I did? How come I was exposed to the things that I was? And, um, you know, what I've really come to find here is that it's just a loving God here. Um, I had a lot of trouble with the God concept, getting the God step. And um, uh, I remember when I was in my first year my, of, of this one home group that I went to, I just loved these people to no end. And they knew I was struggling with God, and I couldn't understand it. And, uh, and they shared that whole meeting. They did a whole meeting just for me about their God, how they found their God. And there was like 15 of them. And after the meeting, um, um, my friend Crazy Jean, who was not a nice guy, uh, came up to me and he said, Larsine, do you think you can find a God from everybody sharing here, a God of your own understanding? And I said, Jean, I appreciate everybody sharing, but I don't think that's going to happen for me. You know, I just don't know that it's there for me. And he said, you know what, Larsine, you know how come God gave you ears? And Jean's a very sarcastic Al-Anon man. So, you know, I knew it would be some. I said, yes, Jean, so I can hear what you guys are trying to tell me. You know, my little sappy little six-month Newton voice. And he, um, and he said, in most people's cases, that's true, but in your case, God gave you ears, so you'd have something to hold on to while you pull your head out of your ass. And, uh, so, and I'm here to tell you the truth hurts, but it will set you free. I mean, it will set you free. Because that is exactly what was going on with me. You know, when I don't want to hear it, I just, I just act like I don't hear it. You know, when it hurts me, you know, I, I liken it, the family disease of alcoholism is like being in a black room for a very, very long time. And you walk here, and the lights come on, and, you're, and my initial reaction is, this hurts. Can't look. This hurts too much. You know, that is why we progress at our own rate and pace, you know. But the truth will set you free. And what I did that night is I went home and I went in my backyard and I said, Hi, God, this is Larsine Gatner. I gave him my address and my phone number. You know, because that's just how I had to start. That is just how I had to start. I don't know where you are. I don't even know if you're really there or not. But I'm told that this is a spiritual program. And if I want what I see in the room, then I have to come to you to find it. You know, and again, this much. That's all I did, this much. And that's how much I do with God every day. This much more, I reach out to God. You know, and I get back so much more in return. But anyway, real quick, I, so anyway, I go to God, you know, because I can't go to my sponsor. My husband's no help, and, and, and my group isn't going to help me. So I, I ask God, you know, I tell God, I close my eyes, I pray to God, God, I've never been a grandma before. All I'm asking for is the baby not be born on the weekend, okay? It's not really like asking for a car or, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not asking for a material thing. This is a baby thing, you know, and, and, I, hear, and I still see God's head in my mind's eyes clearly. Yes, Larsine, you are of great service to the Al-Anon Family Fellowship Program, and you do all kinds of sacrifice, blah, 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 I will grant you this wish. Okay, great. So, no, no baby, no baby. Last weekend, I'm going to Minnesota. I call my daughter-in-law Friday morning. No baby. Wonderful. Everything's fine. I'll see you on Sunday. Friday night, I'm at, I'm at a dinner thing. My cell phone rings. The baby has been born. I am so pissed, I cannot even begin to tell you. I'm at this conference. We're so happy to have you. I'm like, oh, I <laughs> Now, of course, I don't say that, but that's how I feel on the inside, you know. But I have tools here, and I know. So I go out, excuse myself from the room. I go, I call my sponsor. I start screaming and yelling at her. I hate Alan on this sucks. I ask God for one little weenie baby not to be born on the weekend. You know, I'm quitting now and on. When do you get to be there for your family? This is bull, 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 bull. And I'll never forget this. I'm in so much pain. And my sponsor hangs up the phone and says, or she says to me, I'll have to call you back. And she hangs up the phone. Oh, thank you. Gravy training for Larsine right here, boy. You know, this is like God's forsaken me. My sponsor's too busy right now. And now I'm just livid, 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 livid. And I don't know. It couldn't have been 30 seconds later and my cell phone rings. Now, I don't know how it is here in Kentucky, but in Southern California, when your sponsor sponsor calls you, you have crossed the line, brother. <laughs> They're bringing out the big guns. Roll you back in. 
And it is my sponsor's sponsor on the phone. What I found out from my sponsor is I freaked her out so much she had to call her sponsor. So now, now I've got her sponsor on the phone. I know better than yell at her. I go the other way. I start crying. I really wanted to be there when the baby was born. And then I hear her sweet voice on the other line. You know, I have never been meanly sponsored. And all she said to me is, Larsine, um, did you turn your own your life over to the care of God today? You know that I did. You know, because that's one thing I have learned to do here. No matter what, I am here to tell you, I don't care what is going on in your life, how busy you are. It takes three and a half seconds to give your life over to God every day. It doesn't take much time. You know, and I said, you know I did, Charlotte. She says, and you are exactly where you are supposed to be, doing exactly what you are supposed to be doing. And another thing, a beautiful thing happened. You became a grandmother. The baby's healthy, your daughter-in-law's fine, your husband and your son are giving you a blow-by-blow description of everything that's going on. And you want to take this beautiful moment because you made some ridiculous rule about how it was supposed to go down and turn it into a piece of crap. Never mind. Because <laughs> I know at this point I'm like 23, 24 years in Al-Anon. I know the deal. But again, left alone to my own devices, I will go to the negative thing because I'm hardwired to think that way. And now my memory is my husband picking me up at the airport on Sunday, taking me to the hospital, holding that beautiful baby boy in my arms. You know, uh, four years ago I got a granddaughter on a Wednesday. Thank you very much. God hears the prayers. He absolutely hears the prayers. And those guys are the apple of, of our eye. When, when my daughter-in-law got pregnant with uh, Matthew, my husband got, was diagnosed with, he'd already had hepatitis C, but he got diagnosed with a cirrhosis result of that. I mean, he's like 25 years sober and, died, you know, and he's got massive cirrhosis going to see. And, you know, and our world kind of started crumbling around us, and he's done interferon two other times, once for him up. You know, and now he's just started again a third time. Um, he started like seven weeks ago. got the new medicine that's called Victrilis that you add on to this stuff. I keep calling it Viagra. <laughs> And he's taking four pills a day, three times, uh, you know, three, four pills three times a day. I'm lucky to be walking, right? And, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, and it's terrifying. I mean, it's really scary. It is absolutely really scary because what's the worst that can happen? He can die. You know, that's the worst that can happen. But I can't live in that fear. You know, my head always wants to take me there. But right here, right now, everything is all right. And someone told me what, what fear stands for, and it's forgetting everything's all right. And if I hang on to that, then I don't miss today, and I got the shot at a good life, because today he is alive and breathing, and everything is going okay, and it's going like it's supposed to be going, and I want to be supportive and loving, and I want to be able to laugh around it, you know, and, and live our life, and not make, make it be all about him being sick, but about us being alive and well in these rooms, and having a shot at a good life, because you guys have to, um, you know, don't miss, don't miss what's going on right now. I've got a little wooden candle that I keep in my kit, nothing of of its light by lighting another candle. I'm back from the bottom of my heart for lighting my candle. Thanks for having me.